time for re-engineering your finances with the founder of CP Weldy Group, Charles Weldy. Well, hey, welcome to another edition of the show. Walter Sorholt here alongside Charles Weldy, and uh, we have a fantastic episode on the way today. In fact, we're going to be talking about some of the things that you need to do to better prepare for retirement, and we've got a 10-point checklist for you to work through with us on the show today. The show is Reengineering Your Finances. Charles Weldy is the founder and a certified financial planner as well as a CPA at CP Weldy Group, and you can find us online at cpweldygroup.com. As you are listening to today's episode we are recording it the day after the big eagles victory in the uh, championship game charles you're, you're you're floating on uh, cloud nine right now aren't you yeah i got another two weeks of bliss before we face the kansas city chiefs but uh from what i understand it's um you know it's a, an even game and maybe we're favored by a slight margin but it should be a great contest so you know nothing like having your home team in the Super Bowl. It doesn't happen that often. Two weeks of bliss, and then it'll either be another nine <laughs> months of bliss before the next season starts or uh, nine months of, of what could have been. For, uh, hopefully it's the bliss for you, Charles. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, truth be told, I mean, I never thought that they would get this far. I knew they were had a decent team, but I didn't think they were this good. But uh, they seem to be, you know, really playing as a unit and uh, well-coached and, uh, you know, really a team concept. So I think they got a great shot against Kansas City. I could be wrong, but I don't remember them being talked about as a Super Bowl team back at the beginning of the season. You would know better than I than I on that standpoint. Yeah, I mean, they have this quarterback, uh, Hurts, and uh, he's only in his second or third year, and yeah. you know, he's really progressed a he lot. He made a like, big jump this year, right? Yeah, he, he works his rear end off, and, uh, you know, kiddos to him. I mean, he really, you know, I think he has a chip on his shoulder, and uh, he's out there, you know, first guy to practice, last guy to leave, and well, he's a good leader. So I think uh, we have a great future as long as they sign him, you know, to a long-term contract, which – Probably will happen in the off season. Well, I'm sure a good chunk of uh, your clients from the area are excited for what the Eagles uh, maybe have in store here in a couple of weeks as well. So uh, we hit our limit on our football talk, Charles, but always good to uh, <laughs> to be excited about something happen kind of in that local realm for sure. Uh, well, let's talk about this checklist. We've put together 10 tips or 10 points on this checklist for you to walk through um, as we've kind of made our way through the first month of the year. We want the rest of the year to be financially successful for you. So try to get some concrete answers to these questions as you work your way through 2023. So here's sort of your homework as you listen to the show today. If you don't really have great answers for some of these questions and some of these items on the checklist, well, those should be little uh, indicators that it'd be a great idea to come in for a financial review. If you have done all of these things, well, then it should start filling you with more confidence that you are ready for retirement. So let's go through and uh, talk about some of these critical conversations that people need to be having, Charles. First on the checklist, we're going to begin it with income. Do I know exactly how much income I need every month? Why is that such a critical question? Well, that's probably the foundation of financial planning. I mean, obviously, what are you spending? You know, uh, when will it be needed? Where is it going? And um, I don't know. Early in my career, you probably heard the same thing, Walter. They used to say, hey, you know, when you retire, you're going to need approximately 70% of your, you know, your gross income. And I don't know how they got that figure, but I, I guess they figured you weren't traveling to work, you weren't buying clothes, you weren't eating out, that type thing. But I mean, if somebody's making 300 grand a year, you know, they don't need like 210,000, I would believe in retirement, they might need something substantially less. 
So that 70% rule, I think, is something that, you know, people should just ignore. What they really should do is take the time to figure out, you know, I hate this word, but it's, you know, it's definitely uh, something everybody should have is a budget. You know, what's the minimum I'm going to spend? What's the maximum I'm going to spend? And there's really like several categories like food, shelter, clothing, healthcare, transportation, entertainment, vacation. You know, once you get a handle on what you're spending in those particular areas, and then you know what's coming in uh, via Social Security and or pension, then you can really determine what is my income gap? What do I really need to plan for perhaps a 25, 30 year retirement? So that's really key. How much income do you need each month to create, you know, the steady flow of uh, resources to counter, you know, your monthly spending? So that's really critical, I think. You know, probably the most critical piece of the financial plan is how much are you spending? foundational, as you said, and uh, hit on a couple of really good key points there, Charles. And yeah, what's what's 70% might be too much for one person, also might be too little for the next person. Um, you know, just uh, so person to person dependent there, um, how that works. That's why you got to really drill that down. And that's why we put the word exactly in there, because we, I guess you really mean that, right, Charles? Like that, that's not the place where we're sort of like just guessing, like we really exactly, I mean, maybe not down to the penny, but, uh, but, but relatively exactly, we need uh, to know that income number. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one thing I'll just uh, expand upon with the expenses is that, you know, not all expenses are created equally. Like some expenses might go up 3% a year, treadline inflation. Others might go up 6% a year, like healthcare. And other expenses may disappear at a certain age. Like, hey, you know, at 92, you might not be driving anymore. So when you really like spend the time, and generally it's like an hour and a half, two hour tops, to really like, you know, define where your money's going, uh, that could actually make the same pile of money last five, seven, 10 years longer just by zeroing in on what the actual amount is that you're going to be spending initially. And then obviously, you know, things can change from there, but at least you have a good baseline. Good points there, Charles. All right, let's get number two on the checklist. Do I know which account I should withdraw from first? Well, I mean, you know, most of us are trained to defer our, you know, our income, you know, our taxes, you know, as long as possible. But that might not be uh, prudent for people in retirement. You know, when people are retired, there's generally, um, you know, if you're married, filing a joint return, just ballpark, you could probably have $100,000 worth of income and still be in the 12% marginal tax bracket. And what does that mean? That means that, hey, the last dollar that you know was on your return got taxed at 12%, but maybe the average tax is more like 8%. So it's very inexpensive. You get to keep you know, 92 cents on a dollar, the government gets 8%, not bad. So the point I want to make is that you know some people are deferring until their required minimum distribution age, all the money that they have to take out of their retirement accounts they may be better served taking that money out sooner rather than later to take advantage of lower tax rates and maybe keep them in a lower tax rate once they're required to take out X amount of dollars when they hit the required minimum distribution age, which currently I believe is 72 years old. So the point I want to make with what account should I withdraw from first, it's not etched in stone. It's kind of like a work in progress year to year to year. You just want to make sure that you work your marginal tax bracket so that if you possibly can, you keep yourself in the 12% or less tax bracket. And if you need more income, hopefully you have a planner that plans to have some tax-free income for you in retirement that you can tap into so you're not over that 12% marginal tax rate. And the next tax rate is 22%, which is 83% higher. Uh, which, you know, obviously sometimes people have to go into that particular tax bracket. But if you can plan your withdrawals, where you're getting your money from, 
you know, strategically year in and year out, you could actually have the same amount of money last a lot longer because you're paying less tax. Very interesting. All right. This is a checklist. And so what do we like about checklists? We like to be able to tick those things off our list, Charles. And so two down. Here's number three. Do I have or do I know the ideal time to take Social Security? Uh, this a big uh, piece of the puzzle for most folks? Uh, I think so. But um, I would just say the joke in the industry is you tell me when you're going to pass away and I'll tell you exactly when to take your Social Security. I mean, but, obviously, and then you can really get exact knows. about it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, you, you know, what do you have? You have three ages, generally speaking, 62 early retirement, 67 generally is your full retirement age and 70 is your delayed retirement age. And, you know, there's a rule of thumb that I adhere to. And the rule of thumb is if you're single and you think you're going to live well beyond age 80. And I define that as 84 or more, right? If you think you're going to live to, you know, well beyond age 80, 84 or more, chances are if you're single, you're better off delaying your Social Security because you'll get a higher benefit, you know, than someone that takes it early retirement or full retirement age. Now, it gets a little tricky when you're married. I mean, when you're married, generally speaking, as a general rule of thumb, if both people are, are working, you probably should delay the higher the two until age 70. And the spouse that has the least Social Security check, perhaps take that a full retirement age, you know, at age 67. I'm using that in this example. So again, nothing's that's in stone because, you know, health concerns, you know, hey, what's your nest egg? Is it uh, so small that you need to take your Social Security sooner rather than later? But by and large, uh, that's a critical piece of, you know, I guess your retirement income, your Social Security benefit. And I've seen it as low as, you know, 800 bucks a month and as high as 4,200 bucks a month. And obviously it depends on what you earn and when you decide to take it. But by and large, it's a critical decision to make. And once you make it, you know, it's, it's over with. I think you have maybe 12 months to go back and redo it. But it, at the first day of the 13th month, you know, that decision sets in stone. So if you make the wrong decision, it might not be one wrong decision. It might be 300 wrong decisions if you're living 25 years in retirement. All good points across the board here, Charles. If you've got uh, any questions for Charles, by the way, don't uh, hesitate to reach out. CPWeldyGroup.com, the place to go. We've also put the contact information for Charles in the description of today's show as well. Ask yourself this question. If you're thinking about your finances this year and going through the rest of 2023, start thinking about this. Have you addressed longevity risk so that you don't outlive your money. And a lot of people haven't considered that living a long time can be considered a risk, Charles, but it, it certainly is. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's a fellow by the name of Tom Hegna. He calls longevity risk the risk multiplier. And what he means by that, Walter, is that the longer you live, the more uh, market volatility, um, you know, uh, long-term care, you know, taxes, interest rate risk, all these other risks like magnify themselves because you're living longer. I mean, if you retired at like 65 and passed away at 70, you know, not much to really be concerned about. It's only a five-year retirement. But most people that retire, maybe the average age, you know, of, of a couple retiring at 65, there's a good possibility one of them's going to be alive at, at age 92, 95. So you're talking 25, 30-year retirement. So longevity risk is something that you really need to address. And, you know, how we address it is, hey, we've got to have two components in a person's portfolio. Component number one would be an income replacement check, all right, to cover that income gap that we talked about earlier in the podcast. And component number two, the balance of the money should be invested for growth so that, you know, that 
I guess that income account can be replenished at a later date. And, you know, the money would grow to keep abreast with the inflation that we're currently experiencing uh, here. Uh, I think it's hovering around seven, eight percent. But, you know, that's longevity risk is a big deal. Um, you know, you want to run out of air before you run out of money, you know, in, in my book. Yeah, it's a great point. Uh, you don't want to reverse those two things. I think that's uh, not a place anybody wants to fall into for sure. All right, so halfway through the list here on this next one, am I prepared to handle market volatility? If somebody's not asking themselves this question after what happened in 2022, that would be problematic, Charles, right? It would be, but like I think people forget that volatility, market volatility is really like uh, the opposite side of the same coin. Volatility can be upward, which is great, and it can be downward, which isn't so great. So when most people think about volatility, they think about, oh, my account went down. But you know, the opposite side of the same coin is the account goes up too. So I know that 2022 has been, you know, a subpar year for a lot of clients. I think across the board, most people's accounts, if they were in stocks, you know, we're, we're down around 25% round numbers. But what I do is I, I put it in context, Walter. I look at uh, 2020. And, and for most clients that we serve, whatever they made in 2020, they may have given up in 2022. So that's kind of like a wash. But how about the other years, like 2021, 2019, 2018? So, I mean, sometimes you just can't look at your investments in a vacuum one year. You have to really look at it in context. And, um, you know, the reality of it is market volatility, uh, is good. And I, and if it, if we didn't have market volatility, everybody would put their money in stocks and, you know, people like myself would be unemployed. But the reality of it is, you know, you need to have, you know, an income component and a growth component, uh, so that when, not if volatility occurs, you still have that income coming in. You're not going to make an emotional negative decision and panic out of the market. And you, you know, you maintain what you have. And, you know, if history's any guide, it'll come back. Uh, so again, it sounds like a broken record. Hey, uh, buy and hold, stay the course. But in reality, most people have lost money by reacting to the market rather than staying in the market and staying fully invested. All right. We're talking about the 10-point checklist for retirement preparedness. This next one's a big one as well. Just how you were living under a rock if you didn't feel the impact of volatility last year. Uh, same thing goes for inflation. And so you've got to ask yourself, do I have a plan to combat inflation? How does one go about that, Charles? And how do you make that a part of people's plans? Well, you know, as I said earlier, when you have two components of uh, your portfolio, income component and a growth component, what we do with the income component, Walter, is we'll quantify, hey, how much money does uh, this family need, say, over the next 10 years, you know, over and above their Social Security and their pension? And let's just say that, you know, that number is 2000 a month, which is, uh, what, 24000 a year. We may decide to say, Hey, let's take $240,000, which is 10 years, you know, of 24,000 a year and put it in this income component where, Hey, we can draw from each and every month to subsidize our lifestyle. And then what we'll do, we'll take the added step. We'll say, Hey, that's a 10 year program, more or less. Uh, let's factor maybe 15, 20% of that amount. So, uh, let's call 20% of $240,000 is maybe another $48,000. We'll add to that income stream and we'll say, hey, this is going to cover their inflation hedge for the next 10 years. So we'll take in that example, 240 plus 48, 288,000, put it in an income bucket where, hey, you know, maybe they'll make, you know, round numbers 3% a year, but they're drawing from it each and every month. And that money should last for maybe a period of 12 years at 3% and give us 12 years of, you know, 
time to grow that money in that later bucket. And again, I'm a math guy at 6%, money doubles in 12 years. So if that was a stock component in that later bucket and it grew by 6%, whatever we had in that bucket now doubled, you know, in 12 years. So again, it doesn't work exactly like that, but the concept is that instead of having one portfolio, uh, trying to do everything, you have two portfolios, one to combat you know, inflation and income, you know, uh, gap and the other to provide for future growth and replenishment of that soon bucket. Really helpful to get that perspective, Charles, and uh, to understand kind of how you can get concrete answers, which is what we're looking for here on some of these things that will never be exactly concrete um, market downturns, volatility, inflation, those sorts of things. And something else that falls a little bit into that category, but maybe with a little bit more predictability, would be when we turn the conversation to taxes. And I know this is your specialty here, Charles. So we identify the key question to ask here is, am I prepared for the possibility of future tax increases? Well, I think most people realize they're coming, you know, sooner rather than later. I mean, obviously in 2026, even if like Congress or whoever is responsible for raising taxes does nothing, they're going to go up automatically because they're going to revert to where they were, you know, when Donald Trump raised them or lowered them rather uh, eight years ago. So, um, you know, I think most people will agree, you know, with our deficit and with, um, you know, things the way they are, that the government is going to require us to pay, you know, uh, higher amounts in the future. And uh, in order to combat that, I think what we've got to do is we got to work, as I said earlier in the podcast, our marginal tax brackets. I mean, uh, again, like we have two cases that we show people uh, when they come in, like what's possible with you know, integrating tax planning and financial planning. We have one case where we show a couple needs $150,000 a year to subsidize their lifestyle. And basically, because we had them in certain locations, pre-tax, post-tax, tax-free, uh, you know, when you add it all up and put it on a tax return, their liability is less than 3% a year. So, you know, let me just say that again, like 3% of 150,000 is 4,500. Their tax liability, I think was 2,800 bucks if things are positioned properly. And then, you know, you flip that, you know, handout that we give these people at our meetings and we say, all right, if you were single uh, and you needed 120,000, it's the same concept. Maybe the number's a little lower because there's only one social security check, but the concept's the same. Someone needs $120,000 a year and their total tax liability is less than $3,000. So we're just showing people what's possible when you integrate tax planning and financial planning. And again, like, you know, one of the questions earlier in this podcast was, uh, what account should I withdraw from first? It's really a dynamic process where you're just not given one answer. You're one and done. It's looking at it year in and year out and determining, hey, do we have any more gap, you know, to get at this remaining the 12% tax bracket. And if we do, I have no problem uh, having somebody take money out of their IRA, as long as they're over 59 and a half, maybe converting it to a Roth, paying 12%. Because I know in my heart down the road, when they're required to take money out uh, at age 72 or beyond, uh, they're probably going to be a much higher tax bracket. I'd rather than pay tax at a lower bracket, if possible, than wait and delay it, you know, for future tax increases. So long-winded answer, but uh, future tax increases are on their way. It's inevitable. And um, the way our tax system is set up, um, you know, you can plan or you can just like react. And I think it's really important to plan and integrate that tax planning with your financial planning. 
Very good, Charles. As we work through this 10-point checklist for retirement preparedness, lots of good meat in today's episode for you. we got a few other little things to throw out there as well. Charles, uh, heading into our final three here, do I have a plan to address health care costs? This one becomes bigger and bigger every day for people to get some answers to, doesn't it? Yeah, but, you know, with health care costs, I mean, I, I was self-employed pretty much all my life, Walter. So, you know, I had to pay roughly like 1200 bucks a month, you know, for each of my employees' health care uh, you know, for myself, my spouse, you know, so maybe if I had like four or five em- employees, including yours truly, I was spending like $6,000 a month before I opened the door. So now that, you know, I'm 65 uh, and, and on Medicare, and now the costs are somewhat like uh, a lot less, I think, you know, round numbers, 600 bucks a month covers me, 600 bucks a month covers my wife. I mean, I think I'm getting a great deal. So healthcare to me is not that big of a deal at $600 a month. What concerns me, what keeps me up at night is there's a lot of people that come in here and they get their plans done. And the one thing missing is a long-term care strategy. So they don't know long-term care. And again, some people say, hey, you know what? You know, if it happens to me, I'll just spend down my assets, blah, blah, blah. And that's fine as long as like they realize that that's what they want to do. But there are things out there you know, strategies out there where maybe they can put in, I'm just using an example, $125,000 over five years and maybe leverage a $300,000 long-term care benefit. And if they don't need long-term care and they pass away, the 300 grand goes to their family. So the point I want to make about addressing healthcare costs is that's the leak in the dike, long-term care. You know, nobody wants to talk about it. Everybody wants it, but nobody wants to pay for it. But there are like strategies out there, um, annuities that have riders that might provide a long-term care benefit, a life insurance policy that, hey, instead of waiting till you pass away to get your 300 grand, they'll, they'll upfront your 300 grand over four years to subsidize your other income so that, you know, you can live with dignity. Um, and there's a third, you know, possibility, which, you know, is kind of going away for most people, but it's a traditional long-term care policy where you pay a monthly uh, premium that, you know, obviously will go up in the future. Uh, and if you don't need long-term care, it is an expense. But again, something might be better than nothing. And uh, I find that probably 85, 90% of the people that I meet, you know, they don't have a long-term care program in place. Uh, and a lot of them keep, have their heads in the sand because they don't really want to address it. They think it might be too expensive. And I'm just saying that with some proper planning, they might be able to take money from their left pocket, move it over to the right pocket, and perhaps leverage a long-term care benefit that previously wasn't there, but will be there in the event they need it in the future. Healthcare, a big one for sure. And then we get to our final two here, Charles, the next one. Do I have my legacy plan nailed down? What does that conversation usually look like with folks? How many kids do you have? You know, uh, is a legacy important to you? And pretty much everybody says yes. All right. And I was always trained and it doesn't happen in the real world, like, you know, day in, day out, but um, determine what you want to give your kids. All right. Uh, quantify that. Then buy life insurance so that the kids get a tax-free benefit. Now you and the and the spouse can you know have permission to spend all the rest. So instead of like maybe having a uh, retirement that's compromised, that hey you know I've got to make sure like my kids get this or that. You know really like look at life insurance. You know uh, second to die policy would be a lot cheaper because chances are you're both not going to pass away on the same day if you're married. Look at, you know, perhaps quantifying what you want to give the kids from a tax-free point of view, because uh, I would rather inherit a life insurance policy than an IRA, no matter how big the IRA was. Legacy planning is something that, you know, uh, if you don't 
you know, have something in your heart for your kids or your grandkids, you're probably not going to be a client of mine because I was trained years ago. Uh, find out what, what the relationship is with their children and their grandchildren because if they don't like them, they're not going to like you, you know. So, you know, kind of like a, you know, a heads up that, you know, most people really want to leave their children and grandchildren better off than they were. And perhaps the best asset class to use is life insurance that most people aren't using because A, they're not educated properly on it, and B, they're, they're, they think it's too expensive. And you know, like I said earlier in the conversation, some of these things are just taking your existing assets, Walter, and moving them from your left pocket to your right pocket and actually leveraging a benefit that wasn't there before. Last but not least, Charles, our final checklist item. And my goodness, if you've gone through these today on the show and have said, yeah, yeah, I'm in good shape on all of these so far. Well, you probably are in good shape overall in your plan. But if there's still a lot of question marks with these elements, well, then that's a great idea to reach out, get some help with your financial plan and start making some progress in that regard. And here's the last one. Look at your portfolio. Look at your statements. Are there any current investments or products that you don't understand That'd be problematic, right, Charles? It would be. I mean, one thing that, and I'll, I'll just give a true confession, you know, uh, one thing I don't understand, I have no desire to understand it, is this Bitcoin. You know, I, I, I just don't know how to wrap my head around it. I have no interest in learning it. Uh, even the people I deal with from a, you know, compliance point of view don't, don't want us to deal with it. So, um, you know, anybody that, you know, want to buy Bitcoin. I'm not saying good, bad, or indifferent. I'm just saying you can make a killing, yeah, or you can get killed, yeah. So that's kind of beyond the scope of what I do. Um, I'm just more traditional, like, you know, stocks and bonds and, you know, maybe some annuities to provide some guaranteed income, um, you know, managing things. We can control your taxes, your cash flow, uh, the timing of, of certain things. But People that don't fully understand investments, um, you know, I would just say it's probably in your best interest to A, learn about it before you invest in it, or B, you know, divest yourself of it uh, because um, I just don't think it's a good place to be buying something you don't fully understand. Great points all across the board, Charles. Thank you for this breakdown of this 10-point checklist for retirement preparedness. So are you feeling better prepared for retirement or need a little bit more assistance? Well, reach out to Charles if you have any questions, and he can talk about any of the elements that we addressed on today's show and take you through the comprehensive planning process. Don't forget that Charles specializes not only in helping you prepare for retirement, but doing so with tax-efficient plans. You can call 610-388-7705 if you've got any questions. 610-388-7705 or go online to cpweldygroup.com. All right, Charles, go Eagles, and uh, we'll talk again in a couple of weeks. All right, well, I really appreciate it. Take care and have a great day. You as well. That's Charles and Walter. We'll see you next time on Reengineering Your Finances. Financial planning and advisory services are offered through Prosperity Capital Advisors, PCA, an SEC-registered investment advisor. Registration as an investment advisor does not imply a certain level of skill or training. The CP Weldy Group and PCA are separate, non-affiliated entities. PCA does not provide tax or legal advice.